Now, Father, as we open your book, we pray that your spirit would speak to us and empower us to worship you, and to follow hard after you, live in obedience to you, and Father, that you would use this time to change us from the inside out, that you would make us more like your son for having been here together today. Lord, we know that's your goal, that's your desire, it's our desire, because you've given us this desire by grace, through faith, and so we praise you and ask you to speak to us now. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are eager to embrace your truth and to examine our own hearts. May you receive all the glory for the results, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 15, if you would turn with me there. And today, uh, because we have the Lord's Supper, we are only going to do an overview. Last week, I, I covered the first couple of verses. But I really think before we dive into um, this chapter, uh, we, would, um, we would be ill-served if we jumped into the text without knowing where Paul is going. What is he doing? Why did he write this? What is... What is the point of the passage? And so with a limited time I have today, I want to talk about that, and then we will share the Lord's Supper. So here we go. Whether you know it or not, you have reasons for why you do the things that you do. You have reasons for why you live the way you live. There are certain presuppositions in your mind, in your heart, in your habits of thinking that shape the way you think, that drive your ambitions and keep you on a certain course of life. We call this a worldview. It's a worldview. It's a way of viewing life. It's a way of viewing the world. Everyone has a worldview. If you're an atheist, you have a worldview. If you're, if you're a, an aborigine, you have a worldview. Everyone has a worldview. A worldview is simply the lens through which you see and interpret the world around you. For example, the reason Amish people live and dress so differently than the rest of the world is because they have embraced a particular worldview. In fact, they know what that worldview is, and most of them can articulate it. The cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands embraced a worldview with, which was quite different than the worldview of the English missionaries who came to their island to bring them the gospel. The English missionaries held a worldview that was significantly different than the one embraced by the sailors that got them to their fields of service among those islands. We all have a worldview. You have a worldview. Whether you know it or not, there is within your heart a set of ideas and philosophies you believe are true that shape and motivate your life. There are things that you believe that are true. Whatever it is that you believe is true in your heart is going to dictate how you live. Whether you know it or not, you are being ruled by these things that you believe are true. It is the truth by which you interpret everything that intersects your life, every circumstance, good or bad, every 
drop of rain, every clear sky, every cold morning. If you're a child of God, let me ask you this question. I assume that if you are a child of God, that you embrace the worldview of Scripture. And so I ask, what is the core of the Christian worldview? What is the core of the Christian worldview? Boil it down to its irreducible minimum, and what do we have? Answer, at the heart of the Christian worldview is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the resurrection. It's the resurrection. Everything hinges on resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of the Christian's worldview because it is at the heart of Christianity. And this is what's on Paul's mind when he writes 1 Corinthians 15. Now, before we go any further, I want to kind of take you back to the day. And let's talk about what was happening in the time. Let's get some cultural context here because this will be helpful. We need to understand that the world the Corinthians lived in was quite different than our own. Their culture, a lot of things about where they lived and how they lived was quite different. Corinth was right in the middle of ancient Greece, that bastion of philosophical thought and esoteric ideas. This was the land of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, the Greek philosophers. And the Greek philosophers believed that they had a very extraordinary belief, and they all pretty much shared the same idea, that the immortal soul inhabited the body, the soul, which is immortal, inhabited the body, and that at death the soul left its bodily prison and soared upward to the divine spirit. And so there is this dichotomy in their anthropology, their understanding of who man is. There are two parts. There is this soul, which is immortal. There is the body, which is temporary. And so in their minds, the soul was the only thing that really mattered. The body was just the container that we were going to shed. To the first century pagan mind, the immortality of the soul was unquestionable. It was at the heart of their philosophy. And yes, their philosophy spun out in all kinds of different directions. But in terms of the makeup of the human being, they believed that the soul, the immortality of the soul, was unquestionable. The resurrection of the body, however, was absurd to them. Absurd. If you want to get a biblical picture of this, you only have to go back to Acts chapter 17 and read the story of, of Paul, who had just come from Thessalonica. He was making his missionary journey, trying to plant churches. And you remember, he comes to Athens, and he's down in the marketplace. Luke says, every day in the marketplace, talking to people, engaging with them about the gospel. And there were two groups of people that he ran into one day. There were the Epicureans and the, um, what do they call the other guys? Uh, the Stoics who kind of were on, on opposite ends of the philosophical spectrum. The Stoics were the no guys, and the Epicureans were the yes guys. Can we do this? No. Yes. <laughs> um, enjoy it. No, don't enjoy it. Enjoying it's bad. It makes your body feel good. Body is evil. 
And yet here they were. They were down in the marketplace and they hear Paul and Paul is preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're very intrigued and they say, we got to get this guy up to the Areopolis, or however you pronounce that, that place where the, the philosophers would come together and people would listen. And Luke says that this was a, a time and a place where the only thing people wanted to do was to come and hear some new thing. And so there was this, this place and so they take Paul to this place and they say, please tell us this new thing about this new person. And so Paul picks up the theme by pointing to one of their monuments. They're monuments to their gods everywhere. You remember that? And one of them was to the unknown God. And so he basically starts sharing the gospel. By the way, just as an aside, when Paul shared the gospel with Jews, he started with the law. When he shared the gospel with Gentiles, he started with creation. Isn't that interesting? He always started with God, the one who created all of this, is, and then identified who God was, and led that to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is exactly what he does here. And he says, this God who created heavens and earth is the unknown God, and his son, Jesus Christ, and he shares the gospel. But when he gets to the part about Jesus being raised from the dead, they're out of there. Why? Because in Greek thinking, the resurrection of the body is a myth. It's not even worth our time to consider that. And so some of them were polite and said, well, maybe we'll hear about this, hear from you some other time. And everybody else just got up and walked out. My point is, this was the standard philosophy of the day. The immortal soul is the only thing that matters because the body is temporary. It's just our container. And then it dies. And so what happens in the body, what you do to the body, all of that is, is, is irrelevant. Amazingly, however, some in the church of Corinth had actually brought that philosophical teaching into the church. How do you know that? Well, I know that because of 1 Corinthians 15, 12. And we're going to be jumping from, from place to place here because we're getting an overview of this long chapter. Verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead. How do some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? How is it that some of you can say there is no resurrection? They had brought their philosophy into the church. You see, they didn't get the fact that rejecting bodily resurrection sabotages the Christian worldview that they claim to have embraced. And like many of us, they liked, the idea, uh, they, they liked the idea of Jesus paying for our sins. Everybody likes that. And they even believed that he rose again from the dead. They just didn't get the connection. They weren't able in their mind or chose not to connect the dots from the resurrection of Christ to their own resurrection in the future and the practical implications that that truth imposes on our lives now, today, this moment and when we step out of this room, it will have implications on what you do and where you go and how you entertain yourself and everything else. But they didn't get that. They didn't get that. Their perspective was simply this. Since the body only lasts until death. Verse 32, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, they weren't annihilationists. They didn't believe that the soul died. Soul goes into immortality, 
and we were lost in the ocean of the great spirit or whatever it was, but the body's gone. So let's eat and drink. Let's eat and drink. Tomorrow we die. And what Paul is trying to show us is that kind of thinking, whether you are consciously thinking of it or whether it's just part of your worldview by which you make your decisions, that kind of thinking is contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to the gospel. I mean, isn't that the point here? Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached. It suggests that how a Christian lives in this life is of little consequence. That was their view. And having the assurance of immortality is really the only thing that matters. So... For some in the church of Corinth, the only doctrine or the doctrine that was paramount for them was the doctrine of, can you guess, eternal security. That's all they wanted to know. Did Jesus really die for my sins? We accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ as part of it. Understand that. Did he secure eternity for us? It's the only thing we want to know. They needed to learn that with true salvation comes some other things. With true salvation comes a new heart that longs to live in a manner worthy of its calling. The love that it has for Christ and the gratitude that wells up within expresses itself in faith naturally. It's about fruit. It's about bearing fruit, but it's not an artificial fruit. I love Paul David Tripp. He uses the illustration of the apple tree that grew outside of his house growing up and one year drought or pestilence or something got it really sick and there weren't any apples and they were trying to decide how to fix the apple tree and he uses that as a great example of this because so many people think that the way you fix the tree, the way you fix, fix me as a human being is to hang fruit on that sick tree. So you come up with some artificial apples and you hang it on the tree various kinds of obedience, kinds of activity. And that's not what Paul preached at all. It was a changed heart that came through the gospel. It was a miracle of God by which the tree is healed. And the sap of the gospel runs through the tree and produces the fruit. Watch Paul's flow of thought here. In verses 1 and 2, he speaks of the gospel and how he fears that some of them had believed in vain. Look at this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, and which you also received, which, in which you also stand, by which you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. His concern was that some of them had believed in vain. And later, Paul will contrast their vain faith with his own. In verse 10, for example, when he says, watch this, verse 10, he's speaking of himself now, and he says, but the grace, but by the grace, let's back up to verse 9, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain but 
I labored even more than all of them. The them here is the other apostles, as we'll see when we get there. I labored more than all of them. Now notice the qualifier. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. This is the Christian life. The gospel comes. It fills you with that, that new heart, that new energy, that new power. And yes, you want to worship. But it's not just worship. It's not just singing the songs. It also makes you want to repent. And it also makes you want to get busy for the glory of God. Paul says, I worked more than all of them, but not I, the grace of God within me. It's always, in Paul's theology, it's I, but not I. It's I, but not I. I am totally involved in this. I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling, but it's the grace of God in me. I don't get any credit. I don't take any of the credit. So Paul's contrast here is remarkable. How does the gospel energize us to bear fruit and live for the glory of God? It gives us that new heart, new desires, new ambitions. It also gives us new power by the Spirit to fulfill those holy desires and resolutions. But also, it brings with it new promises. New promises. And the greatest of these promises is the promise of resurrection. The greatest of these promises is the promise of resurrection. It's the promise that one day we will be rewarded for how we lived out the gospel in this life. One day we will see him face to face. And everything that we suffered in this life for the glory of God will be worth it. For I consider that the momentary light afflictions of this life is preparing for me a weight of glory which is beyond compare, Paul said. He was looking to the reward, as the author of Hebrews said of Moses. In fact, you remember back in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, this very, very, very familiar passage where Paul is talking about that day when, as it were, all of our, all of our works in this life will be, as it were, thrown into the fire of God's judgment and Admittedly, a lot of our works are like wood, hay, and straw. They're going to hit that fire and smoke. Nothing. Nothing comes out. But anything that we did for the glory of God, anything that we did to please God, anything that we did will come forth like gold and silver and precious stones for which we will be duly rewarded. That's what motivated Paul to live and to die as he did. And beloved, frankly, this is the only thing that can explain the life of the Apostle Paul. It's the only thing that can explain the way he lived. What motivated him? I mean, how does a guy choose to live like the Apostle Paul? There's got to be a reason. And the reason is directly connected, intimately connected, organically connected to his worldview, and at the heart of his worldview was the resurrection. He says, look with me in verse 9, I'm sorry, 19. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, 
We are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because Paul didn't have a happy life. He didn't get a nice job with a nice house and nice vacations. Because part, apart from the resurrection, his life makes no sense. And Paul drives this home in verse 30. Look at verse 30. He asks, why are we in danger every hour? I remember when I was typing this out, I thought I'd, I knew this text, and I wrote, why are we in danger every day? And when I went back to check it, oh, no, it's not every day. Every hour. Can you feel? Paul was feeling the weight of this. I'm in danger every hour. I protest, brothers, he goes on to say, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? What do I gain from that? If we had hoped in Christ in this life only, pity me. Because I'm not getting anything in this life. That's an exaggeration. Oh, he had got so many immaterial things. His fellowship with, with God was perhaps sweeter than anything we've ever experienced. But you know what? It was the resurrection that motivated him. It was the resurrection that motivated him. And we're not sure what he's speaking of here specifically about the beast at Ephesus. Could be some undocumented time when he was actually thrown into a Colosseum-like situation and God rescued him, or it may have been people. Either way, it seems from the language of the text that he was in fear of his life. He almost lost his life. He was constantly the object of ridicule and scorn. Occasionally, he suffered terrible persecution. How can you explain a life like that? I mean, the fact that he chose to live like that. He chose to go to the next town. The only explanation is the gospel's promise of resurrection. And because he lived for the resurrection, he was free from, from two things. You ready for this? Pay attention now. Because of the resurrection, he was set free from two things. He was set free from the meaningless pursuit of pleasure, from just, i.e., his Corinthian brothers, he was set free from the meaningless search for pleasure on the one hand, and on the other hand, he was set free from the fear of death. If I don't have to worry about dying, and I'm not in bondage to my desire for pleasure, I am free. I'm free. I'm free to pack up and move to Uganda. I'm free to pack up and and go wherever God wants me to go. I'm free to talk to my neighbor about Jesus. I'm free to talk to my kids and my, my hostile relatives about Christ. I'm free to say no to certain things and say yes to things that I wouldn't normally want to do. I'm free. I'm not in bondage to fear. And I'm not in bondage to a love of pleasure. I'm free to live for God. Don't you want that? It's where Paul lived. It's the only way you can explain his life. Look at verses 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is what? Death. And Paul was thinking about this. And watch this as well, verses 40, 54 and 55. But when this perishable 
that is, he's referring to his body. When this perishable will have put on imperishable, he's talking about the body. This is radical to the Greeks. When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now listen, connect the dots here. He's saying that that statement that will be true at the resurrection rules my life now. It rules my life now. Listen, nobody, nobody told Paul, you have to live this way. There, weren't anybody, there wasn't any accountability partner with the Apostle Paul saying, hey, Paul, hey, listen, I've been, I've been looking at your, your journal here. You're a little bit behind quota on stonings and beatings. <laughs> we got we to gotta get that up. We need to try a little harder here, get people mad at you. He didn't do that. All he did was live in the light of the resurrection, the core of the gospel. And it caused him all kinds of problems and great glory. This is what ruled his life. This is what ruled his life. Paul wasn't afraid to die. He was no lover of pleasure. In his letter to the Philippians, he said this, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Beloved, what an impact, what kind of impact would our lives had if we truly believed dying is gain? That's what explains Paul's life. How can you believe dying is gain? If the resurrection is true, Dying is gain. How could he say that? How could he, how could he say that? How could he live that every day? He could say it and he could live it because he believed this, that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he conquered death for all who would believe. He conquered death. Resurrection is not secondary, secondary to the gospel. It is central to the gospel. It is central. Furthermore, because it is central to the gospel, it should have a profound effect on the way that we live. Fruit. And so in Corinth, we have on the one hand the Apostle Paul, whose life of holiness, personal ministry, sacrifice, holy ambition, was producing an abundance of fruit to the glory of God, on the one hand. On the other hand, we had the Corinthians who were basically sitting around saying things like this. I think if you could, could have gone to the Starbucks closest to the church of Corinth and set up your computer and listen to the conversations happening around you, you would hear these people from this church saying things like this. Isn't it great that Jesus makes our eternity secure. That's great. And someone else would say, yeah, and isn't it cool that Brother Bob has such freedom in Christ that he can sleep with his father's wife without any guilt? Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. 
I can't believe you follow a guy like Peter. Everybody knows Apollos is the guy who's got the philosophical teaching and the relevance. He's cool. He's far more philosophical and relevant than Paul or Peter combined. I am of Apollos. And someone else is saying, man, if you don't give me back that money I loaned you, you're going to hear from my lawyer. And someone else says, you know, life was pretty lame until I started hanging out with the brothers at church, drinking beer, smoking cigars, and eating that forbidden temple food. Life is good now. And someone else will say, well, I'm glad I found some people who agree that God wouldn't want me to be wasting my life chained to some rotten wife like I had. After all, God wants me to be happy. And someone at the end will say, man, you ain't got any gift at all if you ain't got the gift of tongues. I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying. And that's the way it was in Corinth. That pretty much summarizes most of the topics in the book. Is it any wonder that Paul would write verses 34 and 35, 33 through 34? And he says this, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Bad corrupt company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Interpretation. Identify the guys who are saying there is no such there is no resurrection from the dead, and stop going to Starbucks with those guys. They're corrupting you, and you know better. And it may very well be that they have no knowledge of God, and that may also be true of those who follow them. It was time for the true believers in the church of Corinth to separate themselves from those who were teaching that there is no resurrection. Such men don't know God. Spiritual? To some degree. Go to church? Obviously. They're religious unbelievers. To listen to them and to follow their example is, is living a life of shame it's, it's time to come back to the gospel, Paul is saying. It's time to start living in a manner that shows the world what God is like. It's time to let the power of the gospel and its promise of resurrection have its rightful place in your everyday, moment-to-moment -moment life. Oh, beloved, do we understand, can we even comprehend what the gospel did to Paul's life? It was so much more than eternal security, although it was that. It took this proud, ambitious, self-righteous persecutor of the church and transformed him into a humble, self-sacrificing slave of Christ. That was his favorite term for himself. Just any place you see Paul calling himself bondservant, just cross out bondservant. There is no such Greek word. Put in the word slave. Paul, slave of Christ. Verse 9 reads, I am the least of the apostles. 
and am not even fit to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God, watch this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove In Philippians, Paul tells us that his new ambition was this. The old ambition, make a name for yourself, become the chief young religious leader in all of Jerusalem, take out as many Christians as possible, exalt yourself, live in self-righteousness. Now his ambition, that I may know him. And the power of his what? Resurrection. The power of his resurrection, what was that? It was the power to live in a way that pleases the Lord at every moment, even if it means my death. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I'm telling you, beloved, the reason the Apostle Paul, the only explanation we have for why the Apostle Paul lived the way he did was the resurrection. He thought about it. It ruled his life. It ruled his life. It was not a secondary issue to the Apostle Paul. It was the central issue in the gospel. It was the driving force in his heart that made him live in such an intentional, holy, loving, and sacrificial way that it still bears fruit some 2,000 years later. He wasn't one who would sit around eating, drinking. By the way, um, I'm not sure where we got eat, drink, and be merry. I think that's an addition that happened somewhere along the way. It's not in the text, right? Eat and drink. Eat and drink. If there is no resurrection, let's just eat and drink. You know what he's saying? Let's just live like everybody else. Let's just go to work, come home, eat, drink. Live like everybody else. Grab all the gusto you can. 